<clears throat> Today is the fourth day of this November 2021 seven-day session, and I'm going to continue reading from the book Everyday Zen, Love and Work by Charlotte Joko Beck. I'm going to go to a new section. It's entitled, <clears throat> No Hope. And she says, A few days ago I was informed of the suicide of a friend of mine, a man I hadn't seen for a dozen years. Even then, suicide was all he could talk about, so I wasn't surprised at the news. It's not that I think dying is a tragedy, we all die. That's not the tragedy. Maybe nothing is a tragedy, but I think we can say that to live without appreciating this life is at least a shame. It's a precious opportunity we have to be alive as human beings. It has been said that the chance of having a human life is something like being picked up as one grain of sand out of all the grains on the beach. <clears throat> I've read in some of the Buddhist texts as compared to the chances of a turtle that comes up once a year to the surface of the ocean coming up and putting its head through <clears throat> not sure what it is but let's say it's a uh, <clears throat> an inner tube <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking that in the sutras it wasn't an inner tube <clears throat> Had good odds of putting its head through some kind of plastic. <clears throat> it's such a rare chance, and yet somehow, as in the case of my friend, some error arises. Some of that error is present in each one of us, not fully appreciating what we have just in being alive. <clears throat> so today, I want what I want to talk about is having no hope. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Actually, it's not terrible at all. A life lived with no hope is peaceful, joyous, compassionate life. As long as we identify with this mind and body, and we all do, we hope for things we think will take care of them. We hope for success. We hope for health. We hope for enlightenment. <clears throat> we have all sorts of things we hope for. All hope, of course, is about sizing up the past and projecting it into the future. <clears throat> and one of the things we learn about that over time is what terrible predictors we are. Things we think will bring us joy, <clears throat> bring us frustration, Things we think are going to be terrible turn out to be wonderful. <clears throat> the sashin we think will never turn around for us suddenly does. The blissful mind state that we think will continue forever <laughs> comes to a sad end. We really don't know. And it's a, this attempt to know, to predict, and then to hope, try to put the body English on the 
<clears throat> bowling ball of life uh, is our source of, of unhappiness, major source. She says, anyone who sits for any length of time sees that there is no past and no future except in our mind. There is nothing but self, and self is always here, present. It's not hidden. Say that again, it's not hidden. We're racing around like mad, trying to find something called self, this wonderful hidden self. Where is it hidden? We hope that for something that's going to take care of this little self, because we don't realize that already we are self. There's nothing around us that is not self. What are we looking for? <clears throat> a student recently loaned me a book on a text by Dogen Zenji called Tenzo Kyokun. It is Dogen Zenji's writings on his ideas of what a Tenzo, a head cook, <clears throat> that's a monastery head cook, should be. The qualities of a Tenzo, the life of a Tenzo. From Dogen Zenji's point of view, the Tenzo should be one of the most mature and meticulous students in the monastery. If his practice is not what a Tenzo's practice should be, then, from Dogen Zenji's viewpoint, the life of the entire monastery suffers. But obviously, Dogen Zenji, in describing these qualities of a Tenzo and the directions for how a Tenzo should do his work, is not just talking about the Tenzo. He's talking about the life of any Zen student, any bodhisattva. And so it's very instructive and pertinent reading. <clears throat> so what do we find as he describes this life of an enlightened Tenzo? Some mystic vision? Some rapturous state? Not at all. There are many paragraphs on how to clean the sand out of the rice or the rice out of the sand. Very, very detailed. There's nothing in the management of the kitchen that Dogen Zenji left out. He writes about where to put the ladles, how to hang the ladles, and so on. Let me read you one paragraph. <clears throat> Next, you should not carelessly throw away the water that remains after washing the rice. In olden times, a cloth bag was used to filter out the water when it was thrown away. When you have finished washing the rice, put it into a cooking pot. Take special care lest a mouse accidentally falls into it. Under no circumstances allow anyone who happens to be drifting through the kitchen to poke his fingers around or look into the pot. <laughs> Guess things weren't so different back then. <laughs> what is Dogen Zenji telling us? He didn't write this just for the Tenzo. What can we all learn? <clears throat> In this writing... Dogen Zenji repeats a famous story. If we understand this one story, we really understand what Zen practice is. <clears throat> Young Dogen Zenji went to China to visit monasteries for practice and study. And one day at one of them, on a very hot June afternoon, he saw the elderly Tenzo working hard outside the kitchen. He was spreading out mushrooms to dry on a straw mat. And then she quotes directly from <clears throat> Dogen's writings. 
He carried a bamboo stick but had no hat on his head. The sun's rays beat down so harshly that the tiles along the walk burned one's feet. He worked hard and was covered with sweat. I could not help but feel the work was too much of a strain for him. His back was a bow drawn taut. His long eyebrows were crane white. I approached and asked his age. He replied that he was 68 years old. Then I went on to ask him why he never used any assistance. He answered, other people are not me. You are right, I said. I can see that your work is the activity of the Buddha Dharma. But why are you working so hard in this scorching sun? He replied, if I do not do it now, when else can I do it? There was nothing else for me to say. As I walked along that passageway, I began to sense inwardly the true significance of the role of Tenzo. And then Joko comments, the elderly Tenzo said, other people are not me. Let's look at this statement. What he is saying is, my life is absolute. No one can live it for me. No one can feel it for me. No one can serve it for me. My work, my suffering, my joy are absolute. There's no way, for instance, you can feel the pain in my toe, my toe, or I can feel the pain in your toe. No way. You can't swallow for me. You can't sleep for me. And that is the paradox. In totally owning the pain, the joy, the responsibility of my life, if I see this point clearly, then I'm free. I have no hope. I have no need for anything else. But we are usually living in vain hope for something or someone that will make my life easier, more pleasant. We spend most of our time trying to set up life in a way so that will be true. When, contrary-wise, the joy of our life is just in totally doing and just bearing what must be born, in just doing what has to be done. It's not even what has to be done. It's there to be done, so we do it. Get a real look at this in Sashin. So many people wishing things were smoother, they were more concentrated, that their pain was relieved. But the more we spend time in wanting things to be different, the more we delay actually getting thoroughly into our life, which is what we're here to do. She goes on, Dogen Zenji speaks of the self settling naturally on the self. What does he mean by that? He means that only you can experience your own pain, your own joy. If there is one impression that comes into your life that is not received, then in that second you die a little bit. None of us lives completely like that, but at least we don't need to lose 90% of the experience of our life. Then she quotes again, if I do not do it now, when else can I do it? And says, only I can take care of the self from morning to night. Only I can receive life. 
And it's this contact, second by second by second, which Dogen Zenji is talking about as he describes the day of the Tenzo. Take care of this, take care of that, and that. Not just washing the rice, but doing it carefully, grain by grain. Not just throwing the water out. Each bite we take of our food, each word I say, each word you say, each encounter, each second. That's it. Not chanting with your mind somewhere else. Not half doing the dishes. Not half doing anything. She says, I can remember when I used to daydream literally four or five hours at a time. And now, sadly, I see so many people dreaming their lives away. Sometimes a man or a woman dreams of an ideal partner. They dream and they dream. But when we live life in dreams and hopes, then what life can offer us, that man or woman sitting right next to us, ordinary, unglamorous, the wonder of that life escapes us because we are hoping for something special, for some ideal. And what Dogen Zenji is telling us is that real practice has nothing to do with that. Reminds me of coming into a party, lots of people there, and you're talking with someone, and they're looking over your shoulder, seeing who else is in the room, who else might be coming in. Or maybe you're the one doing it. Can't quite be present. When my son was uh, sick, he's about five years old, we took him to Boston, to Children's Hospital, for a fairly complicated operation. And the doctor was one of maybe four or five in the country that could do what needed done. His name was Dr. Hall. And he was obviously a great man of the hospital. He was followed around by four or five residents. And uh, he came to see us before the operation to talk about it and tell us what to expect. And it was astounding to me how completely present he was. He was just, this was a busy, busy man. But he listened completely, and he made sure that every question we had that we were aware of was aired and got answered. I don't think I've ever seen anyone with that kind of attention, at least I hadn't at that point, except for Roshi Kaplow. And then when all our questions were exhausted, he was out of there in a flash. He just turned and went. on to the next thing. Joko, back to Joko. We're saying once again that Zazen sitting is enlightenment. Why? Because second after second as we sit, that's it. The old Tenzo spreading seaweed, that's a passionate life, spending his life preparing food for others. And actually, all of us are constantly preparing food for others. This food can be typing, it can be doing math or physics, it 
can be taking care of our children, but do we live our life with that attitude of appreciation for our work? Or are we we always hoping? Oh, there's got to be more than this. Yes, we're all hoping. Not only do we hope, but we really give our life to this hope, to these vain thoughts and fantasies. And even when they don't produce for us, we're anxious, even desperate. Back about a little over 30 years ago, uh, I had just stopped drinking and uh, begun to work on myself in a different way than I ever had before. And I was out in the front yard of our house in Brighton raking leaves. It's a job I normally didn't like very much. At least it seems that I didn't. And all of a sudden I noticed there was absolutely no urgency or compulsion. I was just raking. I wasn't focused on how much remained to do or how long it was going to take. It was just a pleasure to do it. It was startling, so different than the way I'd been operating up till then. It's what happens when we As Joko says, abandon hope. Stop trying to anticipate what's going to happen. Really get into the moment. It's what we're here to do in Sashin. But so often, just the rigors of Sashin throw us back into this old dysfunctional way of being where we try to anticipate the problems and find a way around them. Then Joko has a story. She says, One of my students recently told me a good story. It's about a man who was sitting on his roof because a tidal wave was sweeping through his village. Say by the time, yeah, okay. Tidal wave was sweeping through his village. The water was well up to the roof when along came a rescue team in a rowboat. They tried hard to reach him, and finally when they did, they shouted, Well, come on, get into the boat. And he said, no, no, God will save me. So the water rose higher and higher. I'm thinking this is not a tidal wave. This is a flood. But anyway, the water rose higher and higher, and he climbed higher and higher on the roof. The water was very turbulent, but still another boat managed to make its way to him. Again, they begged him to get into the boat and to save himself. And again, he said, no, 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 God will save me. I'm praying. God will save me. Finally, the water was almost over him, just his head was sticking out. Then along came a helicopter. (laughs) It came down right over him, and they called, Come on, this is your last chance. (laughs) You can see them with a bullhorn there. Get in here. Still, he said, No, no, God will save me. Finally, his head went underwater, and he drowned. When he got to heaven, he complained to God, God, why didn't you try to save me? And God said, I did. I sent you two rowboats and a helicopter. (laughs) We spend a lot of time looking for something called the truth. 
and there is no such thing except in each second, each activity of our life. But our vain hope for a resting place where some, somewhere makes us ignorant and unappreciative of what is here right now. So in Sashin, in Zazen, what does it mean to have no hope? It means, of course, to really do Zazen, to just sit. Nothing is wrong with dreams and fantasies. Just don't hold on to them. See their unreality and turn away. Stay with the only thing that's real, the breath and the body, the environment. This moment. Now, none of us wants to abandon our hope. And to be honest, none of us is going to abandon it all at once. But we can have periods when for a few minutes or a few hours, there is just what is, just this flow, and we are more in touch with the only thing we'll ever have, which is our life. So if we practice like this, what reward will we get? If we really practice like this, it takes everything we have. What will we get out of it? The answer, of course, is nothing. So let's not have hope. We won't get anything. We'll get our life, of course, but we've got that already. So let's not be like my friend failing to appreciate our life and our practice. This life is nirvana. Where did we think it was? Dogen Zenji said, if you are unable to find the truth right where you are, where else do you expect to find it? Joko says finally, let's remember that old Tenzo. If we practice the way he spreads seaweed, then we can be rewarded with this nothing at all. at all is quite remarkable. All of our problems come from the things that we bring to the party. The whole spirit of Zen practice is just this. Not just this, and I wish it would get better. Of course, as Joko said elsewhere, when we truly do commit in that way, it does get better. But as long as we're looking for a result, we're getting in the way. I'm going to turn to another section. It's called Shut the Door. And she begins, in the 1960s, Hakuin Yasutani Roshi began making annual visits to teach the Dharma in America. During each visit, he would conduct a week-long sashin here in Southern California. Like others who began Zen practice with Yasutani Roshi during these visits, I would practice intensively with him for seven days each year, and for the rest of the year, continue doing zazen on my own. 
Those sashims were extremely difficult for me, and I'd have to say that if there was ever a muddled practice, it was mine. But having the opportunity to study with him, even though it was only for one week each year, and to see what he was, humble, gentle, vital, and spontaneous, was enough to keep me going. He was quite old when I knew him, in his 80s and having some physical difficulties. When he shuffled into the zendo, I wondered if he would be able to make it all the way to his seat. Just a little bent old man shuffling in. But when he would begin his Dharma talk, I couldn't believe it. It was like a streak of electricity running through the room. The vitality, spontaneity, the total devotion. It didn't matter what he said or that he used an interpreter. His very presence revealed the Dharma, not to be forgotten if it had once been encountered. One of my regrets that I came to the center after uh, the Asatani was no longer coming, but uh, I have listened to some of uh, the tapes of him uh, talking with center members, translated by Roshi Kaplow. Really, really quite fascinating. She says, two qualities of Yasutani Roshi struck me most deeply. I would say that he was luminous and ordinary at the same time. Looking into his eyes in a formal interview was like looking for 10,000 miles. There was nothing there. It was amazing. Yet somehow in that open space, there was total healing. Outside of the Zendo, he was just an ordinary little man running around with his broom and with his pants rolled up eating carrots. He loved carrots. I think I had heard that somewhere before. Yasutani Roshi gave me my first experience of what a true Zen master is, and it was a very humbling experience because he was so humble. Radiating from him were freedom, spontaneity, and compassion, the jewel that we all seek in our own practice. But we must be careful that we don't look for the jewel in the wrong place outside of ourselves failing to see that our life itself is the jewel, unpolished, perhaps, but already perfect, complete, and whole. When you come right down to it, the Dharma is quite simple and always available. But the trouble is that we don't know how to see it, because we don't. This jewel, this freedom, escapes us. Freedom is such a sticky thing to talk about. Our usual way of looking at freedom is to see it as a matter of being left alone to go where we want to go and do what we want to do. And we hope that something out there will give us freedom. So when we are in an unpleasant and restrictive situation, we leave a door open so we can run out the door to new hope and freedom. All of us without exception do this, which brings us to another sticky word, commitment. One important aspect of our practice is to look honestly at this constant process of hopes and fears and all the schemes that are a reflection of our lack of commitment to our lives. To do this requires that we shut the door that we like so much to leave open and turn around and face ourselves as we are. This is commitment, and without it, there is no freedom. 
so hard to make that commitment. We're so afraid to truly shut the door. <clears throat> Yet there's so much power that comes from committing completely. She says, through practice, we wear out the fantasies we have about running out the door to something somewhere else. We put most of our effort into maintaining and protecting the ego structure created out of the ignorant view that I exist separately from the rest of life. We have to become aware of this structure and see how it works because even though it is artificial and not our true nature, <clears throat> unless we understand it, we will continue to act out of fear and arrogance. By arrogance, I mean the feel of being special, of not being ordinary. So that, by that definition, arrogance can only can even mean thinking that we're worse than other people. I'm hopeless. It's a form of arrogance. The French essayist Montaigne said, "I consider myself an average man, except for the fact that I consider myself an average man." It reminds me of Lake Wobegon, where all the children are above average. <clears throat> she says, we can be arrogant about anything, about our accomplishments, about our problems, even about our humility. <laughs> There's a, a movie, Breaker Morant, and uh, it's about the war between the English and the Boers, the Dutch in South Africa. And there's a point where two Englishmen are speaking to each other about the Dutch, and one of them says, they don't have our altruism. <clears throat> Out of fear and arrogance, we cling to all kinds of self-centered attitudes and judgments, and so create all kinds of misery for ourselves and others. Freedom is closely connected with our relationship to pain and suffering. I'd like to draw a distinction between pain and suffering. Pain comes from experiencing life just as it is, with no trimmings. We can even call this direct experience joy. But when we try to run away and escape from our experience of pain, we suffer. Because of the fear of pain, we all build up an ego structure to shield us, and so we suffer. Freedom is the willingness to risk being vulnerable to life. It is the experience of whatever arises in each moment, painful or pleasant. This requires total commitment to our lives. When we are able to give ourselves totally with nothing held back and no thought of escaping the experience of the present moment, there is no suffering. When we are completely experiencing our pain, it is joy. <clears throat> pain, but not suffering. <clears throat> Sometimes you hear it, the difference uh, characterized as clean pain versus dirty pain, or clean pain versus complicated pain. Joko says, freedom and commitment are very closely connected. When two people make a commitment to each other in marriage, they are in a sense shutting the door on their chance to escape the heat and pressure that is part of any relationship. But when accepted as part of their commitment, the heat and pressure make for growth and the relationship blooms. 
I'm not saying that one should commit oneself to any relationship that comes along. That's crazy. What I mean is that our practice is to commit ourselves to our experience in each moment. Just as the commitment of marriage puts us under heat and pressure, so too does Zazen. We might even say that the first thing we must do in Zazen is to marry ourselves. We shut the door and sit quietly with what is, feeling the heat and pressure. Recognizing this moment is absolute. It can't be any other way. It's already been determined. She says, often people have the idea when they begin practice that it is going to be nice and comfortable. But Zen practice has phases that are anything but pleasant. By just sitting with this very moment, the secure walls of the ego structure crumble, and this can be confusing and painful. Physically experiencing the confusion and pain, rather than avoiding them, is the key to freedom. I like that physically. It's in the body. What we do instead is we run off in our thoughts, either complaining or strategizing, trying to put a spin on things, trying to shape it. Totally come into the body to be here on the mat. totally giving ourselves to our practice, whatever our method of practice is. The breath, our koan. Returning each time we drift away, returning to this moment, patiently, without complaint, without grumbling, without despairing. Really, there's no problem. Just our our job is so simple. It's not easy, of course, but so simple. Physically experiencing the confusion and pain rather than avoiding them is the key to freedom. We have to embrace the misery, make it our best friend, and go right through to freedom. This jewel of freedom is our life just as it is. But if we don't understand the relationship between pain and freedom, we can cause suffering for ourselves and others. We have to be willing to be on the cutting edge, just being there with whatever comes up in each moment. Pride, greed, arrogance, pain, joy, don't try to manipulate what comes up in Zazen. And we should add, don't attach to what comes up. Don't grab at it. Don't start to think about it.
<clears throat> she says, by sitting with as much awareness as we can muster, attachments in time just wither away. <clears throat> we change, slowly, but we change. The more devotedly we sit, the faster, arguably, the change is going to be. <clears throat> that continually coming back is why Sashin develops as it does. Go through periods where we're discouraged, stuck in glue. But Zazen is a powerful solvent. As long as we abandon our thoughts, projections, keep coming back, it can work. Just have to do it. Have to have faith. <clears throat> of course, it helps when we've done it and seen it work. Then we have that experiential knowledge. Yeah, this practice does work. But even then, we keep forgetting. <clears throat> At least speaking for myself. You're back to trying to game the system. <clears throat> Joko says, when Yasutani Roshi was 88, on his last birthday before his death, he wrote, the hills grow higher. And then she says, the more clearly we see that there is nothing that needs to be done, the more we see that which needs doing. It's a funny thing. When we really share what we have, our time, our possessions, and most importantly ourselves, our life will go smoothly. There is a story of a well fed by tiny springs that always gave a good supply of water. One day the well was covered over and forgotten until somebody uncovered it years later. Because nobody had drawn water from it, the springs had stopped feeding it and the well had dried up. It's the same with us. We can give of ourselves and open further or we can hold back and dry up. <clears throat> It's always painful to see people who've, in their old age, have dried up. It's not at all uncommon, is it? She says, Zen practice is shutting the door on a dualistic view of life, and this takes commitment. When you wake up in the morning and don't want to go to the Zendo, shut the door on that. Put your foot out of bed and go. If you feel lazy during work, shut the door on that and do your best. In relationships, shut the door on the criticism and un unkindness. In Zazen, shut the door on dualism and open up to life as it is. Very slowly, as we learn to experience our suffering, instead of running from it, life is revealed to us as joy. <clears throat> Yeah, waking up in the morning, not wanting to get out of bed. And I've worked with that a lot. And you find out eventually all you have to do is get out of bed. <laughs> within, within 10 seconds, problem gone. <laughs> You're brushing your teeth. What was that all about? I was in bed and it seemed, oh my God, I need sleep. <clears throat> well, maybe you do, but you can get out of bed. <clears throat> so many things where we limit our lives by trying to protect ourselves. 
One of the things we learn in Sashin is to step out, to do a little more than we think we can do, to bear a little more than we think we can bear. When we have a lot, a lot to bear, it's tough, very tough. But out of that comes real seasoning. We become more of a person, more who we are. John Tarrant said, quoting this from memory, we're all flowers. What kind of flower we are is not our business. Our job is just to bloom. And with that, stop now and recite the four vows.